This program is made possible by the members and donors of the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall take our patented style of looking at major stories with a focus on history and context, and apply it to the corruption of Donald Trump. You know, it's often said that following Trump corruption news, it's like drinking from a fire hose. Well, if trying to follow the day-to-day of Trump's corruption is like a fire hose, then today's episode is like looking at the reservoir of corruption that metaphorical hose is tapping into. Clips today come from Who, What, Why, The Breach, Trump, Inc., The Ezra Klein Show, and The Trump Cast. When one looks at the totality of this story, going back at the very least to 1987, there's a kind of Manchurian candidate feel about it all, the degree to which the Russians have had their eye on Trump for so long. Talk about that first. Well, I mean, I I think that's, that's, that's right. I mean, this hasn't been continuous. I think it's been in phases. But what we can say is, is that Moscow has been interested in, in Trump for at least 30 years and, and, and probably longer. I mean, we, we have Ivana, a, a woman from, from communist Czechoslovakia, whom he married in 1977. Uh, and we know from, from archives uh, held, now held in Prague that Czechoslovak spies kept, kept an eye on the Trumps in Manhattan, um, talked from time to time to Ivana's dad, uh, lived, still living behind, behind the Iron Curtain. And they would have sent this in the trade, it's called it the kind of intelligence product would have been sent back to the KGB in Moscow. So, so the, 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 there will have been a file in Moscow on Donald Trump for a very long time. Initially, I think probably quite small, but it got bigger and it got very much bigger after 1987 when, as you said, Donald Trump traveled to, to the Soviet Union for the first time with Ivana um, at the invitation of and on the dime of or the ruble of the Soviet government. Um, and one of the things I discovered when I was researching my book was that the then Soviet ambassador, someone called Yuri Dubinin, went, went out of his way to kind of woo Donald Trump, uh, literally got off a plane from Moscow, drove to Trump Tower, took the elevator up, knocked on the door and said, Donald Trump, you have built the most beautiful skyscraper in America, if not the world. It's, it's my great pleasure to meet you. Flattered him. Um, and four or five months later, he, he's, he's brought over to Moscow. Now, you have to ask yourself, why would the Soviets do that? I mean, what, 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 did they love his, his real estate design? No, of course not. They saw him as a target, as a kind of upwardly mobile American in business and possibly politics as well, who might prove useful to them in the months and years ahead. And one of the things you point out is that all of the things that they were looking for in people that might be useful to them in potential assets, that he checked off all the boxes. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, we, we know quite a lot about this period, because after the Soviet Union collapsed, the, the, a lot of the KGB um, records leaked. Separately, there was a defector uh, who, who was secretly working as a double agent for British intelligence called Oleg Gordievsky. He's still alive, actually, li- living in the south of England. Um, and he handed over top-secret KGB memos 
to 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 the British, uh, and they reveal that during this period, you know, Reagan is in the White House. There's some detente with with Mikhail Gorbachev, who's the Soviet Premier, but nonetheless, there's deep suspicion from the KGB towards America, as there was during all of the Cold War, practically. But they were looking for. Americans and that the, the boss of the KGB, someone called Vladimir Khrushchev, was sending out messages saying, "Find me more Americans. We need more American sort of top-level contacts." Um, and there was a personality questionnaire which which did the rounds. Uh, at the kind of person they were looking for, they wanted people who were ambitious, vain, uh, perhaps corruptible, narcissistic, unfaithful, um, and and also people who were lousy analysts. Um, uh, and were, were perhaps suggestible. And, and you, you look at this questionnaire and you think, well, that's Donald Trump. He, he ticks every single box. And, and the strange postscript to his trip to the Soviet Union was that about six or seven weeks after he came back, he took out three full-page adverts in a series of American newspapers, including the New York Times, criticizing Ronald Reagan's foreign policy. Now, why would a real estate guy do that. And, and separately, he let it be known that he was interested in going into politics. And, and moreover, he, he was interested in becoming president. Of course, it didn't happen for a long time. But, but I think whatever happened in Moscow, he came back with a new sense of strategic direction. What do we think might have happened in Moscow? Well, I mean, I think he would have been flattered. Uh, I think he, he would have been bugged. We know he was staying in the National Hotel uh, just around the corner from Red Square and, and the famous tomb where, where Lenin is embalmed um, and the Kremlin. Um, and, and I think so, so, so his conversations would have been recorded. All of that material would have gone into the KGB's by this point much larger file on Donald Trump. And I think they would have kind of evaluated him to see whether he, 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 he might be useful, whether he, he could... Uh, do things which were politically um, helpful to the Soviet Union. Now, they had certain geostrategic goals at that point. They were very keen to drive a, a wedge between the United States and its European allies, for example, to, to sow divisions among NATO countries. Actually, the kind of things that, that have now come to pass under Donald Trump as president. Um, but I think what happened after that, of course, is that Gorbachev lost control of the situation. The Soviet Union collapsed. And, and if, you like, if you can call it Project Trump, kind of was, was mothballed and was then sort of subsequently revived um, at, at different moments. Trump went back to Moscow in the 1990s. But I think big time in 2013 and over the last five years. And one of the things that, that certainly was critical during this period from certainly in the mid-90s and, and even more so as we got closer to 2013 is the financial ups and downs of Trump and always needing money from somewhere. Well, I mean, that, that's right. And, and again, th th this, is, this is factual, but w w we know that Russian mobsters bought condominiums in Trump Tower soon after it was completed in the 1980s. Uh, a couple of them went to jail, were, were convicted of federal crimes such as money laundering and racketeering. There was a famous uh, Soviet underworld boss called, well, he was nicknamed Yaponchik. He was called, actually called Vyacheslav Ivankov, who, who, who moved from Moscow to, to Brighton Beach in 1992 and spent three years on the run from the FBI. They eventually caught up with him and they discovered during this entire period he'd been living in Trump Tower secretly. And, and so there are, there are, there are long-standing questions uh, uh, about links between Russian money 
and and Trump real estate and and branded properties. Uh, I mean, we know. If, if you just take Trump out of the equation for a second, we, we know that real estate is kind of the, the best way of money laundering. But we also know that, that it, it, in the sort of post-Soviet period in the 1990s, the, the, there was no law in, in Russia. It was impossible to make a legitimate fortune. Um, that There was massive corruption, that, that almost kind of the, the, the mafia and the, the, the government kind of fused to become a sort of single ruling group and and this has continued under under putin i mean he has a most kleptocratic regime and then there are kind of further questions about what deals donald trump may or may not have made with russian financial interests after the financial crash of 2008 when he was so broke he could no longer repay a big loan uh, of of 45 million dollars to deutsche bank as one looks at the way this evolved in, in its time, since 1987 in particular, that it didn't necessarily involve a grand plan or a grand project Trump, but that the degree to which they kept their eye on him, he also kept his eye on the Russians. And there was just uh, needs that they both had during this period. Yes, I mean, I think it's very important, uh, Jeff, to be kind of clear that, that Vladimir Putin is, is not the master of the universe. He's not sitting in a kind of bat cave in Russia, flicking uh, glowing red switches, making things happen here and there. And he, he's, he's, what you have to understand is that he's a classic opportunist. He's a cynic, uh, I would say a nihilist as well, who just believes in, in his almost divine mission to to rule Russia, to, to restore Russia to kind of greatness. And, and meanwhile, I would say to actually kind of plunder Russia so that he and the people around him are all multi-billionaires. They're some of the most sort of richest people on the planet. And, and obviously, he, he wants to find partners in various countries who, who can perform useful tasks and who kind of see the world that he does. And I think with Donald Trump, he, he, he found the ultimate transactional guy um, uh, and if you believe the dossier of Christopher Steele, a former British intelligence officer, that the Russians have been, have been quite energetically cultivating Trump for at least five years. Uh, they have been p- providing him with, with intelligence, which might help his kind of political ambitions. And he has been shipping them uh, uh, details of what Russian oligarchs have been getting up to in the United States. And so this, this on-off relationship kind of blo- was blossoming. And obviously when Trump entered the political phrase a presidential candidate, it went to an entirely new level. You have a doctorate in studying former Soviet states. As the government's capacities in terms of monitoring and understanding Russia were dwindling, was that something that people in that community of scholars were talking about and lamenting at the time? Oh, absolutely. Um, I gave a keynote speech at Indiana University, I think in 2014. 
2015. Um, and I remember calling my keynote speech a eulogy um, because it was in the Central Eurasian Studies Department. And, you know, jobs were disappearing, funding was disappearing, research was disappearing, academic positions, NGO positions, um, and positions in the government, uh, which used to be, you know, fairly robust throughout the Bush era, um, at least for Central Asia, there is interest in those countries because they bordered Afghanistan, um, we had military bases there, they were kind of undercovered before. But also, there's there were a lot of Russia scholars, uh, especially around the time of the sequester that were like, hey, you know, there's a lot going on with Russia, this is not where you should be doing cuts. Um, if you're going to cut this is this is not a safe place to do this, you should actually be investing more attention to Russia. And then of course, Russia went and invaded Crimea uh, shortly after, you know, proving them right. And I kind of thought at that point, all right, they're going to get serious, they're going to realize that, you know, Russia is is newly aggressive and take these threats seriously. And I mean, you know, they, they did improve a little, but they just didn't realize the capacity or the scope. And I think that they were also very overwhelmed with other foreign policy crises, you know, some of which are related to Russia, um, you know, like Syria. But I think they just they had a lot on their plate and they weren't balancing it well. What are the, some of the things as an area expert in this kind of thing that you see the media missing in their coverage of Russia? What kind of things jump out at you? Um, well, it's gotten more thorough lately. I mean, for the longest time, just convincing people, you know, that this was happening, that the Trump team was working with, um, you know, oligarchs and Kremlin officials and people connected to them. That was something that was very difficult to get people to believe. And now what you're seeing is an investigation that's enormous in scope, um, taking in money laundering, espionage, cybersecurity, you know, the, the possibility of treason, all these angles. So I, I do think the coverage is pretty good. Um, I wish there was more written by people who spoke Russia. I wish there was more analysis of, um, you know, Russian media. I think when you look back at what Russian media and Russia's state media was doing in 2014, 2015, in the years leading up to this, it's very interesting, like a lot of really damning American, um, you know, English language materials that I found about Trump, I found through reading Russian language websites that were very excited about them. Like when Trump did an interview about Crimea on Fox News in February 2014, you know, which is very strange. Like, why is the host of The Celebrity Apprentice on Fox News talking about Crimea? Um, you know, I found that because uh, Russian state media outlets were were really excited about it because Trump was for Russia to be a superior country and, you know, saying that, you know, the U.S. is going to do a great favor for Russia in the future. He was very mysterious about it. So I just wish there were more people who spoke Russia that were doing kind of hard digging and research into this. And I suspect there are in the intel community and in academia, but it's not necessarily getting translated to the public. This is kind of blowing my mind. What year did they have Trump on to say? Uh, in, in February 2014, during the Olympics, during the Sochi Olympics. And he was on talking about Russia defending Putin. He was also calling for um, riots, for an economic crash, for everything to go to total hell to make America great again. And then he just kept saying, we need to go easy on Russia. We need to be Russia's friend because they're going to be doing us a favor in the future. And, you know, we're going to be glad about that. It was an absolutely bizarre interview. I've referenced it numerous times, but no one noticed it because it just I think it just seemed like, OK, crazy Donald Trump is on TV blabbing away about stuff he doesn't know. I mean, that's like basically every Donald Trump interview. So I don't think that people at that time realized the significance of him talking about Russian foreign policy. But in retrospect, uh, you know, especially because we know everything Russia was doing during that period, it looks pretty damning. Has anyone asked him about that interview? 
Oh yeah. I mean, I've, I've written about it several times and, um, you know, a couple of radio shows and stuff. I've played excerpts after I found it, but what was frustrating to me is I found this interview back in, I think June, 2016. And I was like, holy, um, you know, holy cow. I don't know. If I can <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, like I couldn't believe what I was seeing because, you know, it was showing that yes, Trump had had interactions with Putin. He admitted in the interview, it showed his whole philosophy, which is basically let's have everything be destroyed destroyed so that people can like himself could financially benefit from it. Um, and it, you know, had this implication that there was some sort of deal being struck behind the scenes with Russia um, that was going to benefit it. And it was at a very strange time. Like this was kind of before the Republicans had embraced Russia and Putin openly, like even the Fox News hosts that interviewed him were a little bit like, you know, gee, Donald, you really think so? And, you know, and of course, this just became their their party line um, a couple of years later. And now they're, you know, Kremlin and, you know, advocates, but it, it really stood out. And I could not get people to really take it seriously. Like, I was sort of surprised that, you know, this interview wasn't all over the place. Because as Trump was out there saying, I have nothing to do with Russia, I've never had anything to do with Russia. There's like this really damning interview talk with him bragging about all the stuff he has to do with Russia. And I'm like, okay. And you know, that was a lot of my frustration was in 2016 was just, you know, people's refusal to look at Trump's own words, you know, it had nothing to do with a big conspiracy, um, you know, by secondhand or thirdhand sources saying things about him. It was just the stuff coming out of his own mouth that was so incredibly damning and people just didn't pay enough attention. Where do you think Trump's attachment and admiration for Russia comes from? Um, I think it's multifaceted. I think there's some kind of ideological or philosophical component in that Trump generally admires dictators. He admires strongman governments. He admires oligarchs. I think that he has oligarch envy. I think if he could, uh, he would have lived like an oligarch in the United States, um, you know, free of the kind of rules and regulations that we have. Although, obviously, we do not have enough regulations <laughs> because people like Trump and his cabinet members managed to can come to power. Um, you know, and I think that that's what he wanted. And I think he's worked directly uh, with Russian financiers throughout his whole career, but especially after his bankruptcies in the 90s, they propped up his business and gave him money uh, when nobody else wanted to work with him because he was very high risk. And I think that it's possible he owes them quite a bit of money. And so I think there's an aspect of debt. I think there's an aspect of greed where certain policies, like removing the sanctions could prove beneficial to the Kremlin, to the oligarchs that back the Kremlin, to Trump and to Trump's cronies in the US to plutocrats here. And of course, there's also, um, you know, the issue of compromise, which has been brought up. Uh, and I do think the compromise is real. I don't know if the specific allegation uh, in the Steele dossier is real. But uh, I tend to think that, you know, Putin and, and the Kremlin do have something incriminating on Trump that they are using as insurance. But I don't think they need it exactly yet. I think that Trump is a, you know, a willing participant uh, in this situation and genuinely seems to see eye to eye with them and is extremely deferential. And that's been constant with him uh, for the last 30 years in terms of his attitude towards Russia and especially, you know, towards Putin since Putin took power at the turn of the century.
If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies. Owned by the richest dude in the world. That one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. But if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. We're going to explore a theory from two perspectives. One is from Glenn Simpson, and another one from a guy named Abraham Wallach. First of all, Donald has no sense of obligation, even if somebody's investing money with him. Wallach worked for Trump for 12 years. He and Simpson don't agree on everything. But there's one central point the two both make. Trump has engaged in some serious alternative financing. Let's start with Simpson. For years, as a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, he covered financial crimes, money laundering, Russian oligarchs. In 2009, he leaves the paper to start his own firm, Fusion GPS. He continues to do journalistic investigations, but for law firms, companies who want to understand their competitors, that sort of thing. He's called it journalism for rent. And then in 2015, he gets some new clients, one backed by Republicans and then later one linked to Hillary Clinton. The clients want him to investigate Trump's businesses, find out everything he can. So Simpson and a bunch of staffers get to work on the investigation. But they want to know more. So they hire the former British spy, Chris Steele. And that's the origin of the dossier. All of this information basically remains secret until BuzzFeed posts the dossier online, just before Trump is inaugurated. It causes a year of controversy, becoming a central part of the Trump collusion investigations. Congress calls Simpson to testify. Republicans accuse him of being the one who is doing the colluding with the Russians. A key figure behind the controversial dossier detailing unsubstantiated allegations about the Trump team's ties to Russia is set to speak with investigators on Capitol Hill today. Republicans in Congress today will step up efforts to find out who and what was behind that controversial so-called dossier. Since the dossier was published, Simpson's been sued by Russian bankers and the president's attorney for defamation. Simpson isn't making further public comments. And his testimony to Congress, it was behind closed doors. There are no recordings, no photos, no videos. Hi, I'm Kelly O'Coin. So we got someone else to read Simpson's testimony. I played Dollar Bill Stern on the Showtime series Billions. He's got his own Russia connections. And also Pastor Tim on The Americans. A Cold War drama about Soviet sleeper spies trying to access the highest levels of the American government. Kelly O'Coin is going to read Simpson's exact words from the transcript. Think of this as a historical reenactment. So he's playing a guy in a hearing room in the U.S. Capitol, facing a panel of legislators and their staff. People are told to leave all their electronics outside, Blackberries, iPhones, pagers, recording devices, Bluetooth wristbands. 
The Republicans are pretty hostile. They're trying to show that Simpson and the Hillary Clinton campaign set up the Russia conspiracy to entrap the Trump campaign. So they asked Simpson what he was doing all that time investigating Trump's business. I think I can speak more broadly and say that it was an open-ended look at Donald Trump's business career and his litigation history and his relationships with questionable people, how much he was really worth, how he ran his casinos, what kind of performance he had in other lines of work. Simpson hadn't really known anything about Trump's business. His assignment? To learn everything there was to know. It was a very broad, unfocused look, which is the way we do our business. Simpson tells Congress, as part of his research, he read everything he could. Books, court records, financial documents from around the globe. What we are going to do is listen to Simpson's testimony. And then Jesse, Adam, and I are going to break it down. First, Adam. I really feel for Glenn Simpson when he talks about this moment of, we're just looking at Trump business. We don't really know anything. And, you know, Glenn Simpson, like me and Jesse, were longtime business reporters, which is to say we have never thought about the Trump business before recently. It's just not an important business. When I started calling around, when I started really being interested in this and I started calling around to people in on Wall Street in commercial real estate, uh, none of them knew anything about the Trump organization either because it was such an irrelevancy, it was such a minor operation. Um, you really – suddenly got this sense that it was just a mom-and-pop shop um, operating or on a, the fringes. Or a pop-and-kids. Pop-and-kids pop shop, and kids exactly. Shop. In his testimony, Simpson tells how it just took a Google search to find Russian businessmen working well, with Trump. troubling. As we've got deeper and deeper into understanding, you know, Donald Trump's business career and his history, it gradually reached the point where it seemed like most of the people around Trump had a connection to Russian organized crime or Russia in one way or another. But Simpson points out something strange, which is, in spite of having all these connections to Russia, so there was all that. Trump and never built anything there. We also increasingly saw that Mr. Trump's business career had evolved over the prior decade into a lot of projects in overseas places, particularly in the Soviet Union, that were very opaque. And that he'd made a number of trips to Russia, but said he'd never done a business deal there. And I found that mysterious. This is a puzzle for many reasons. That's Adam Davidson speaking. One thing is, over this period of time, if you think about, you know, Trump first went there when it was still the Soviet Union. He claimed to be negotiating for a Trump Tower Kremlin Square. There was a lot of money made by a lot of not very impressive people in Russia in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. And someone who had that many ties and that much of a relationship to make no money, according to what he says, to have no deals there, that's very puzzling. So why? What's going on? Well, maybe he's completely incompetent. With Trump, you can't ever uh, eliminate that possibility. But Glenn starts thinking that there's something else going on, that he is successful in these trips. The most fundamental question is, does this make normal business sense? And I think Glenn Simpson's strong suspicion is these trips were very profitable. Simpson has a theory about Trump's Russia connection. The theory is rooted in two things we know were happening around this time. The first is that Trump was having a harder and harder time getting traditional kinds of bank financing for his projects. Right. And why is he having that difficulty? Because he's had a series of catastrophic failures over and over again. His 
Casinos have gone bust. His buildings keep going into receivership. He's not a good credit anymore. And so major Western banks don't want to give him money. But that doesn't stop his need for money. And so he's got to find alternative ways. And he starts going around the world seeking capital. The second thing is that in the early 2000s, there was a lot of money being made in Russia, and really rich Russians did not want to keep it there. There's huge amounts of capital piling up in oil-rich countries like Russia and Arab countries and Venezuela and other places, and a lot of this is illegal money, trillions of dollars of illegal money. And um, and that money needs to find a place to go. It needs to find a place to go because there's just, if you want to actually invest in Russia, there's not that much to invest in. And these are the two things we know were happening. Trump had a problem getting traditional bank financing for his projects, and Russians were trying to get money out of Russia. What I later came to believe was that he was, in fact, developing different kinds of business relationships with the Russians and, you know, the sort of marquee thing that he always talked about, which was building a tower in Moscow. And that, in fact, you know, he'd found other ways to profit from his relationship with that. So this is the point of the testimony where I really got interested because what Glenn says is he realizes he's been looking for a tall tower in Moscow, and he's been looking for the wrong thing. And what we, you know, gradually begun to understand, which, you know, I suppose I should kick myself for not figuring out earlier, but by 2003, uh, 2004, Donald Trump was not able to get bank credit for it. And if you're a real estate developer and you can't get bank loans, you know, you've got a problem. Simpson comes to believe Trump has a workaround. He and his partners can't get straight-up financing to build Trump towers around the world. But if they can sell enough units when the projects are just a pitch, say 60, 65 percent, Trump and his partners can use those early sales to convince banks to give them money. Simpson calls this alternative financing. So the real trick is to get people who say they bought those units, and that's where the Russians are to be found, is in some of those pre-sales, is what they're called. And that's how, for instance, in Panama, they got credit of, they got a Bear Stearns to issue a bond by telling Bear Stearns that they'd sold a bunch of units uh, to a bunch of Russian gangsters. And of course, they didn't put that in the underwriting information. They just said, we sold a bunch of units, and here's who bought them, and that's how they got the credit. And So that's sort of an example of the alternative financing. This is such an important point. We've been struck, as we've looked at deals the world over, that the Trump Organization, at the early stages of a project, often puts out a statement that the building is around 60% sold. That number pops up with remarkable frequency. And what Glenn Simpson is saying is, it's a business model, alternative financing. It was just a very clear and simple idea, which, you know, he he says, oh, I could have, you know, I could kick myself for not figuring it out earlier, which is just, yeah, he, (laughs) Trump was going to a place that had a lot of money. It was trying to get into the West illegally. Trump wanted a lot of money to get into the West and was not particularly persnickety about the legality of it. And the two met and worked out a bunch of deals like that feels like that makes sense of the facts of the case with utter clarity. They explain to me everything. And the alternative explanation that Trump was in earnest trying to do successful, good, fully legitimate projects and just for whatever reason it never worked, I find very hard to believe. 
Simpson's theory explains not only what Trump might have gotten out of his business dealings with Russians, but also what Russians got out of it, a place to put their money. Take golf courses. Simpson noticed some large and what he found unexplained infusions of cash into Trump's golf courses, which nowadays tend to be money losers, unattractive investments. We saw what Eric Trump said about Russian money being available for his golf, for the golf course projects making remarks about having unlimited sums available. Eric Trump has disavowed these remarks, but here's what golf reporter James Dodson quoted him as saying. We don't rely on American banks. We have all the funding we need out of Russia. So we were able to get the financial statements. Because UK disclosure law is different from in the US, Simpson did get to review records for the golf courses. And they don't on their face show Russian involvement. But what they do show is enormous amounts of capital flowing into these projects from unknown sources. And, or at least on paper, it says it's from the Trump organization, but it's hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, if you're familiar with Donald Trump's finances and the litigation over whether he's really a billionaire, you know, there's good reason to believe that he doesn't have enough money to do this. An important note, neither Donald Trump nor his business has ever been charged with money laundering. Now, just a quick interjection to say that that clip was from Trump, Inc., and rather than going and finding a clip to tell the whole story of Trump and money laundering, I'll just say that you should listen to the Trump, Inc. episode about money laundering and Trump's Taj Mahal casino. And for now, I'll just give you this detail from CNN referencing the IRS, quoting, The Trump Taj Mahal Casino broke anti-money laundering rules 106 times in its first year and a half of operation in the early 1990s, according to the IRS in a 1998 settlement agreement. The casino repeatedly failed to properly report gamblers who cashed out $10,000 or more in a single day, the government said. Trump's casino ended up paying the Treasury Department a $477,000 fine in 1998 without admitting any liability under the Bank Secrecy Act, unquote. So no, Trump has never been charged with money laundering. He was just the guy who was more than happy to look the other way in at least 106 instances of possible money laundering activity rather than simply following the law. So when you think about this and recognizing there's a lot we don't know, but when you when you try to put the picture together in your head, what is an innocent version of it or the most innocent version of it? So I don't know. And I mean, look, we're, we're uh, both in terms of guilt and innocence, you know, we're just kind of speculating wildly. I think that the innocent version that most sort of accounts with the facts, although it has its own pretty troubling implications, is that it's a group of amateurs who want to have this reset with Russia sort of because they have their own foreign policy instincts. Now, the reset with Russia, you know, Bush wanted it. Obama wanted it. This is not um, the notion of wanting warming relations uh, is certainly not new or particular. The difference is, is that those prior presidents said it's only going to happen on our terms. It's only going to happen in exchange for greater respect for human rights. Stop killing journalists, right? There, there was a laundry list of, of things that, the, that we wanted Russia to do in order to come to the table and have this better relationship moving forward. Um, 
Um, it appears that the Trump campaign uh, or the the sort of the, I guess, the Trump administration now, they want all the benefits um, uh, and, and sort of what are clearly benefits of having a better relationship. And they don't care so much about sort of those um, those other conditions. They're less invested in some of those human rights issues. Um, so this was a policy, uh, a policy preference. A lot of this administration's policies and this transition and campaign's policies were driven by the president's sense of personal ego and narcissism. For whatever reason, he perceived Vladimir Putin and the Russians as being favorable to him, liking him, praising him. I think a lot of that was actually based on a series of mistranslations about Putin's own uh, own language. Um, uh, and so, right, so he wants to have this sort of the, this warming of, of relations. Um, there is an active measures campaign, but... They don't know what it is. They don't recognize it for what it is. Sure, there's a few very, very peripheral actors who have nothing to, nothing really to do with the campaign, but maybe say or do some bad things on behalf, on, on their behalf. But it really is too attenuated and a, a connection to fairly hold them accountable for it. And then sort of, uh, once all of this stuff starts to come to light, because they are political amateurs, because their instinct is not to want to be transparent and accountable. They decide that the politically expedient thing is to not be honest about it. So I guess the most innocent explanation, if you're sort of coming from the president's standpoint, is a lot of people lie to him. A lot of people lie and obfuscate things from his senior staff. Now, it makes it sort of uh, hard to understand why he wouldn't have sought out additional information uh, from the executive branch, from the intelligence communities, from the FBI. But let's assume he didn't know that they existed, didn't understand that he had access to that stuff. And so what you have is sort of, you know, maybe policy preferences that we personally don't share. Republicans traditionally don't share. Democrats traditionally don't share. But, but hey, they're, you know, this is the, the policy preference of the elected leader of the United States. Um, combined with some amateur missteps. Um, and then when it started to come forward in a way that was looking nefarious, even though it wasn't really nefarious or not as nefarious as it seemed, uh, you know, it's the cover up is worse than the crime. Um, I think that's kind of, you know, the, the most innocent, uh, sort of coherent explanation I can come up with. Um, then I think the, the scale sort of goes up from there into really far more nefarious let, explanations. Let me ask about one piece of that, because I agree with that being broadly the, the innocent explanation. You have a bunch of people who don't understand what's going on, make some bad decisions, and then go into sort of an overdrive of defensiveness, cover up lying, firing James Comey, like just make mistake after mistake after mistake. One thing within that, which I wonder about, is another version of that is a world in which they kind of quote unquote colluded and didn't understand really that that was what they were doing, that it had this valence. And and I mean that like this. This was a team, as we've said a bunch of times now, of political amateurs. But one thing you learn as you begin doing politics is you work with a lot of different people. You work with a lot of interest groups. You work, if you're a Republican, with the Heritage Foundation, with the Chamber of Commerce, with the Mercer family, right? All these people who give you money or have policy preferences, they somehow give you support and you are in some kind of communication conversation with them. Sometimes it's support is opposition research. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's ground troops, right? Democrats work with unions. They work with environmental groups, all of it. I wonder sometimes whether they understood 
that you can't do that with Russia, that you can't do it with foreign governments, that there is a category difference between working together with a foreign government on a crime <laughs> to uh, influence an American election and working with one of the many groups that might come to them in a normal way and say, you know, James O'Keefe, right? If James O'Keefe had come to them and said, we, I have a tape from inside the Hillary Clinton campaign showing them saying terrible things about Bernie Sanders. And the Trump administration was like, great, like release that tape, we'll re retweet it. I don't think anybody would have cared. And I think, I wonder if it's possible they saw Russia just as like another in an endless line of people who wanted to work with them, maybe had someone, something to offer them. They tried to work back. It wasn't a big deal to anyone at the time because this was happening a lot. And then it's only when it begins coming out that the whole rest of the world says, no, 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 if it was Russia, that's totally different. And then these guys are like, oh, absolutely not. We didn't do anything with Russia. We would have never done that. And then you get into the lying and the covering up and, and all the rest of it. But it just it seems possible to me that there was a lot that went wrong here that they didn't even understand the severity of what it is they were doing in the moment. So I think that's plausible. Um, we have a, a pretty uh, fundamental principle in the United States, which is that ignorance of the law is not an excuse. Agreed. Yes, I'm not. You it's not an excuse. Know, uh, that you might be violating a law, either in spirit or technicality, um, oftentimes doesn't matter to whether or not um, you've possessed the requisite mental state. I think if that theory is correct, it goes to a notion um, that is deeper than just naivete, and that is that. Republicans and Democrats in the United States, you know, we do have a set of shared pre-political commitments. Those things that we care about or are supposed to care about more than kind of the individual policies on taxation, the size of the social safety net, all of these things that, you know, we kind of duke out every day. And that is a commitment to things like uh, the rule of law, uh, legitimate elections, right? So sort of th these these notions that even, you know, we can fight about voter suppression, all these other things, but, but in, in big ways, it's sort of, it's about what are our commitments as Americans? What is our commitment as a Western democracy? When we talk about sort of spreading, you know, American ideas around the globe, what are we talking about? You know, free speech issues. And Whenever we sort of, uh, you know, whenever we're positing that, hey, they just didn't realize that having a foreign country attempt to covertly influence the United States election, not to mention a hostile foreign adversary attempt to do so, uh, potentially by violating laws, Right. That speaks to something more than just, hey, we didn't know this was how you're going to play the game. It, it says that, you know, the way they think about the United States as an institution, and they are now the guardians of, of sort of the executive branch, certainly, but, but lots of American institutions at this point, that they don't feel the same way about this country that most other people do. And most other people do in a way that actually doesn't really matter regarding their sort of their party identification doesn't really matter. Um, so I do think that, I think that's a, a perfectly plausible, maybe even a likely explanation. But to me, at least, it raises other really, really profound questions about sort of, you know, what do you think is a legitimate election and how do you define democracy and, and, and frankly, sort of right and wrong? Um, it, that gets into, to, you know, more nuanced and certainly non-justiciable questions. Uh, but I think there's a, there's a series of uh, potentially very unpleasant answers down that path. And what is the bad 
version of this story? What is what is the version that's consistent with what we know now that if you heard it, it would you would say, well, that that was what I feared. So I think we have to kind of put away this notion of Trump is a Russian agent, you know, he's an actual Manchurian candidate, you know, sort of the the treason, treason, treason stuff. I, I think that's, you know, uh, outside the realm of sort of what reasonable people have to consider. That said, whenever you look at individuals like Paul Manafort, you look at the histories and the legal histories of people like Carter Page, the worst case scenario or, or one very bad scenario, I suppose, is that uh, the Trump campaign and and now potentially the Trump administration is thoroughly infiltrated by individuals that are working on behalf of a foreign adversary, that the principles of the Trump campaign, including the president himself, are either aware of that fact or should have been aware of that fact, right? Or sort of are on the best, in the best explanation, willfully blind. They just don't care. All they care about is whether or not they share the single goal of getting Trump elected president. Any other policy goals, any other sort of, uh, you know, human rights or democratic or sort of insert whatever we're talking about here, uh, you know, Overlap of interest be damned. The law be damned. Uh, you know, all they care about is whether or not people are working to get Trump elected. And that there are a series of financial entanglements because the president and his family and his senior officials and his cabinet have failed to at all sufficiently divest from their businesses such that we are now in a situation in which the critical foreign policy of the United States is being driven by some combination of people who are working on behalf of a foreign adversary's goals, the president's own ego and narcissism, sort of regarding what he perceives as the, as the legitimacy of his election, and a set of hidden financial incentives that accrue to whatever various individuals such that the decision-making at the top of the executive branch is not in any meaningful way being guided by the best interests of the American people as this administration understands them, but instead by a different set of interests. And I think that is, you know, maybe it's not the, you know— he's, you know, in 1984, Putin and Trump meet at a beauty pageant or whatever kind of the conspiracy theory version of this is. But it's still a really, really profoundly upsetting and extreme account uh, uh, with pretty serious implications. these dark times, there aren't a whole lot of unambiguously positive things you can do to make the world a measurably better place, but there is at least one piece of low-hanging fruit that I always recommend. To help with our shift to a renewable energy future, we can sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than the old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly 
indefinitely. If you live or work in New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, D.C., Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, or Ohio, you can sign up with the clean energy company I've partnered with, Clean Choice Energy. To sign up and support the show by letting them know that I sent you, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best. You can easily find that link right in the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you'll find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestfulleft.com. It'll make you feel good every time you see your electricity bill, so don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. One of the things I really liked about this book is the way you make sense of the Trump-Russia connection by going back, way back, 30 years. And in a way, the continuous thread is that Donald Trump always wanted a building in Moscow with his damn name on it. And if you want to just reduce it to like one thing that Trump wanted from Russia, that's the thing he's wanted for 30 years. Well, well, he he had you're absolutely right. And as we point out in the book, he had these made these multiple attempts to do it. But the story in terms of the Trump presidency and you know, really begins with that Miss Universe pageant in Moscow in 2013, uh, when he flies to Moscow to preside over, you know, his, his signature property, Miss Universe. But he's really interested is he sees this as the chance to finally do the deal in Moscow. For one thing, he's got a partner, Aris Agalarov, billionaire oligarch who is close to Putin. And Aguilarov had agreed to sponsor the Miss Universe pageant. So he's got the beginnings of this relationship, but he sees this as an opportunity to get that Trump Tower in Moscow deal finally done with Aguilarov. And the one missing piece is what, what the, the reason he's so uh, excited about working with Aguilarov is Aguilarov had just not long before been awarded a medal by Putin. He was known as Putin's builder. He had done all these big construction projects for the for the Kremlin, including some big uh, uh, summit in Vladivostok that uh, Putin had. World, um, he, he was building World Cup. He was Cups building the World States. Cup. He was building the World Cup. Okay. So for Trump, the most important missing piece was getting Putin's blessing. And so this this is when you can really start to see it actually goes back five months earlier in Las Vegas when they first uh, when Aguilarov's first go to Moscow to Las Vegas and they agree to sponsor the Miss Universe pageant. And that's when you start to see all these fawning comments about Putin. What a great guy Putin is. I know Putin. He really, uh, you know, he's doing a terrific job. There. And he repeatedly <laughs> lied and said he'd met him yeah. and already knew him and yeah. they had a relationship, none of which was true at the time. Trump right. was desperately trying to get him to show up at his right. beauty. But, but, the point, but the point, uh, what really shows this and what shows it in the book, and it starts off in the first chapter is when he is in Moscow, you know, he's there with Miss Universe. And he's also thinking about a, a, this big tower deal that he wants to pull off with the Aguilarovs. But what he keeps asking everybody around him is, where's Putin? Is Putin coming to the pageant? Am I going to hear from Putin? Can I have a meeting with Putin? You know, he's there for 36 hours and this is what consumes him. And he, he's told, well, you're going to hear from Putin. Putin's going to call. And he keeps waiting. Where's the call? Where's the call? Where's the call? 
Finally, he gets the call, and it's not from Putin. It's from Dmitry Peskov, Putin's chief spokesperson, who explains that Putin's busy. The king of Holland is meeting with him, and he's stuck in a traffic jam. Can't get to see you. That you courtesy know, call. Sorry, you know, can't courtesy, make it. You know, courtesy call. Um, and he's and, and and Trump is really really disappointed. I think he thought that if he could sit down with Putin. That would be it. This would be the best relationship ever. He'd get whatever he wanted. The two of them would rule the world. Whether or not he make a nuclear treaty while they were at it within an hour, and so he's very disappointed. And trumping in fashion. I know you're going to find this really hard to believe, Jake. You know, he's talking about this with a with a staffer from Miss Universe, the organization, and he hears that you know Putin's not coming. He says, "Well, you know, we can tell people he came. Who's going to (laughs) know?" (laughs) <laughs> and they, you know, they, the staff says, no, we shouldn't do that. The rule we apply on this show. <laughs> there call, are rules? No, not, not that kind of rule. But we apply a rule called Trump's razor, which is when you're trying to explain something, go with the stupidest possible explanation <laughs> because it's the most likely to be right. This is Josh Marshall's rule. And it's very good. And you guys actually come up with it, right? If we're trying to explain Trump's affection for Vladimir Putin and his weird alliance with him. He wants to build a ba- damn right. building with his name on it. Well, Why let, isn't let, that enough? Well, Why do we need let, a let, let, me, let me take it a little step further, though, it, it, actually. from And this is, again, from the book. So they go to Moscow. He They do reach an agreement, Trump does, with the Aguilera-Ups. There's a letter of intent signed to build that Trump Tower. Donald Trump Jr. is put in charge of the project. February 2014, a few months later, Ivanka flies to Moscow to scout potential sites for Trump Tower with Emin Agalarov. What happens? That's the same month the Ukraine crisis blows up. Putin annexes Crimea, intervenes in Ukraine. The U.S. and E.U. impose sanctions on uh, Russia. One of those sanctioned is Spurbank, which was the majority Sperm, owned. Spurbank, as we call it okay, here on the show. All right. yeah, so. yeah, Russian government owned, majority owned bank that was going to finance the Trump Tower deal. And it is the, at, at this time that the Trump Tower deal collapses. It was now, killed by sanctions. I, I mean, well, that was Rob probably. Goldstone's theory. He I mean, believes the sanctions... that that was what killed it. So if that's the case, it explains a lot, including Trump's hostility to sanctions. It killed his dream yeah. of Trump Tower well, and, in and, Moscow. And, and yeah. you, you know, you raised the point of, you know, again, a, sort of a clue hiding in plain sight. Why is he engaged in this bromance or something darker with, with Vladimir Putin? It doesn't end there. To me, what is stunning, and it was reported, but I don't think it's been fully absorbed, is that for the first few months of his campaign as president, when he's leading the pack, he has another deal. He's negotiating another deal to build a tower in Moscow. And he's doing this with a fellow who I'm sure you've discussed a lot of times on the show named Felix Sater, a former felon. And while he's doing this, he's not telling the voters to whom he says, I will put America's interest. First, he's, you know, he's trying to build this deal and it can only happen with Putin's approval. And so when he's asked about Putin as a presidential candidate, he is saying again what he's continued to say all along, positive things. Joe Scarborough says, well, he's a killer. He murders journalists. And Trump says, how do you know that? It's not proven. Well, what else could he say? If his chief concern was negotiating this deal, can you go out there and say, you're right, he's a thug, he's a murderer, he's a killer, we should have nothing to do with him, while you're trying to negotiate a deal with him? So that was one of, I think, the biggest secrets 
that he kept. And then later on, he said, I have nothing to do with Russia, of course, as you know, is a lie. But that, I think, represents some of the profound strangeness of the uh, of the Putin-Trump relationship and the fact that he really kept a lot of this a secret. Well, there's a huge uh, change in context, David, right, in, in 2016, when it suddenly appears possible that Donald Trump could win the nomination and potentially get elected president. So, you know, people say, well, you know, the the Internet Research Agency wasn't trying to elect Donald Trump. At the beginning, they weren't. That wasn't on the horizon. At some point in 2016, it became a possibility, a target of opportunity. And likewise, Donald Trump may well have started running for president thinking, hey, this is an opportunity to increase my chances of building Trump Tower in Moscow. But at some point... He accidentally became a real candidate, well, a viable to, candidate. But I hate to correct you. There's one thing that we have in the book is that in 2015, this great reporter named Adrian Chen, who had basically written the first English about the, uh, story, Internet, remember, Research about the Internet Research yeah. Agency in June or July of 2015 and exposing what was doing, something that the U.S. intelligence community continued to miss. In December of 2015, he goes on. A podcast. And he goes, you know, I've been keeping track of these IRA, Internet Research Agency bots that I've been, you know, that have been doing all sorts of weird things in the last year or two. And I've noticed December 2015, a lot of them now have become conservative trolls for Trump. So from an early period. Well, that's about when it would have happened, yeah, though, yeah, right? Sure, I mean, yeah, those yeah. were after the initial debates, and he was getting all this attention yeah, but, and yeah, all this traction. Yeah, and that right, was, right yeah, there, right? When yeah. he's taking off, it seems like a switch is thrown. That's when a smart bot would start trolling for Trump <laughs> yeah. instead of just against Hillary. Nate Silver says he has a better chance. That's what we're doing now. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's also clear that that's about the time that you can see the Kremlin really making a concerted effort to penetrate the Trump campaign, to cultivate people in the Trump campaign. You know, uh, George Papadopoulos gets named to the Foreign Policy Advisory Board, and suddenly this professor he'd met in Italy who had paid him no attention uh, but had all these connections to the uh, Kremlin uh, start follows up with him, starts to cultivate him in London, uh, uh, takes him to lunch with a woman he introduces as Putin's niece. That's when Carter Page, who got named to the Foreign Policy Advisory Board, gets invited to speak at the new economic school in Moscow and give this prestigious address that's covered by the pro-Putin media in in Russia. Um, so you really see um, uh, a, a concerted effort, a campaign to, you know, they see this guy and the people around him as people they can exploit. You know, it's like f- it's full service. It's like uh, a z- you know complete zone coverage. They're trying to penetrate the campaign, obviously, to get their hooks into it, to find out what's happening, maybe to even to influence it. And at the same time, they start moving. They've started penetrating the Democratic Party. They've they've gotten into John Podesta's email um, in the spring of 2016, right. and so they start a campaign also to tilt the field. In Trump's favor, certainly against Hillary at the start, and then probably more with the aim to help Trump. So the Russians really are are covering it both ways. What can we do to figure out how to help or how to understand the Trump campaign, get people in there, 
We still don't have the full story on what Manafort was telling Deripaska, the Russian oligarch who he owed millions of dollars to while he was running the campaign. But we do know they were reaching out to and trying to cultivate Carter Page and, and Papadopoulos. At the same time, they were trying to influence things. And at the same time, you know, later on when this becomes public, the Trump campaign, this is what I call collusion. We don't necessarily say it explicitly in the book, but they engage in the cover-up. They keep denying when they have reason to believe and they have reason to know when they've been informed that the Kremlin wants to help them. They keep going out there publicly and saying, there's no Russian meddling here. Imagine if you were standing in front of a bank and you knew the bank was being robbed and you said to people passing by, there's no bank robbery going on. Now, whether that's illegal or not depends on how much you knew beforehand, but that's collusion in a cover-up. That's providing an alibi in the book. We call it aiding and abetting. So there's like a lot of different Russian angles all being played simultaneously. So let me ask you to to rate those angles a little bit. There are lots of different collusion scenarios, uh, many, if not all of these, being investigated by Robert Mueller. But there is the Papadopoulos scenario. There is the Carter Page scenario. There is the Paul Manafort scenario. There is the Roger Stone scenario. Uh, there is the Trump the, Tower, the Trump Tower meeting, yeah. uh, the, the, which I guess would be the Aguilera of continuation right. of that. That's at least five or six. Now, it's possible they're all true. It's possible they're all coordinated. It's possible none of them meant it will turn out to be anything, but that there was a cover up without a crime. Or maybe there's something more like what you were talking about, David, where there wasn't very active collusion, but there was some recognition of what was probably happening and an effort to downplay it. What if, having steeped yourselves in all of this culture around Trump and Trump's campaign, what do you think are the most I, likely scenarios? I, I think it's very hard to imagine this was a grand conspiracy that was well thought out and plotted in which there were regular meetings and contacts and you do that, I do that, you know, if for no other reason that the Trump campaign like the Trump White House, like everything about Trump is engulfed in chaos. <laughs> it would be incompatible with the level of chaos <laughs> yeah, that we're familiar yeah, yeah, with. Yeah. You know, they, they wouldn't be, have been capable of pulling off a grand conspiracy like that. But that is also what made them so vulnerable mm. to these various Russian approaches and manipulations. We've just heard clips today, starting with Who, What, Why, discussing the history of Russia keeping their eye on Trump as a potential target for manipulation for decades. The Breach talked about Trump's oligarch envy that is likely the source of his affinity for Russia. Trump, Inc. dove into Trump's symbiotic relationship with Russian oligarchs in need of laundering money. The Ezra Klein Show looked at the spectrum between charitable and uncharitable visions of Trump's corruption in relation to Russia. And finally, we just heard the Trump cast speaking with the authors of Russian Roulette about the ins and outs of Trump's long-held desire to get in good with Putin and build a Trump Tower in Russia. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. This is Bill. I am calling from, God help me, St. Petersburg, Florida, calling about the episode where we were talking about slavery and white supremacy. There's just one parallel that I have to throw out there 
Germany. Germans had the social disease of racism, and of course, we all know what they did with it. But Germany was able to get themselves free of the spell. But what they did was, at the end of the war, they forced a lot of those good Germans into the concentration camps to see the bodies, to bury them, to actually see them as humans instead of those people. America never did that. We never got over the, the social stain of our racism. And that's the problem. We never broke the spell. There are people out there who basically socially still see black people as slaves. I live here in, in, in St. Petersburg, Florida. Gentrification is another symptom of this ongoing white supremacy. There's no empathy at all for people that are not in the demographic, their target demographic. They've driven out pretty much all the homeless, most of the poor and black people, and the city is just whiter and whiter and whiter. I don't have a problem with that if everybody's included, but we never cured the original disease in this country, and until we do, this country might end bloody. I'm sorry. Thanks for the chance. Keep up the good work. Bye. Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York. I was just finishing up listening to your episode on gerrymandering and the coming midterm elections. And uh, I had a couple of thoughts for your listeners to consider because the fires seem to be burning right now for many progressives where everything at was once thought to be true, meaning the ideology, which I really have said to many of my progressive friends, lacked a vision over the last 20 years that many progressives have subscribed to is being questioned to the point where many progressives, particularly younger progressives, seem to be motivating themselves towards becoming socialist, which in a historical context would make them more left, and indeed the real left, than progressives are presently. In relationship to gerrymandering in the upcoming midterm elections and the 2020 census, progressives particularly need to understand how the country has gotten to the position where it finds itself. The reality is, from the election in 2008 to the elections in 2016, progressives had kind of gotten lazy. The reality that I see, and it's unfortunate, but it is true, is that we celebrated Obama's defeat of the Republicans, but we did not take into our hearts the challenge which he put out to us. He said, you want me to do X, Y, and Z, you better make me do it. And we didn't go about doing that. The goal in 2008 was to get rid of George W. Bush and the Republicans. Whereas the goal 
in 2006 for the Republicans was to get rid of the Democrats and to continue maintaining control of the houses, of both houses in Washington and taking over various state houses over the next 10 to 16 years. Progressives did not have that long-term vision. This to me is slightly surprising because many progressives, many big voice progressives who own and operate really good podcasts and podcast networks have behind them significant financial backing and they run companies in businesses, not usually just one, but multiples. So therefore, to me, I would have thought since they are business people, they would have to have a long-term plan of engagement to take back and maintain control of not only both federal houses, but state houses. Maybe it is time that progressives take a page from conservatism. I would really encourage all of your listeners to get a book titled The Republican Noise Machine and to study how the Republicans, the neoconservatives, took control of the institutions of power. If you do not have such a inclination in your vision, in your mission, in the way that you are doing business every day, whether that business is political or economic, or in the need of the present time, both, you will never win. And you know this, and we know this. So we cannot become lazy again. If we are going to shoot for the houses, if we are going to shoot to take back the Senate and the House of Representatives in 2018, we better know how we are going to keep those houses, not only throughout 2020 and 2022, but through 2032 and 2042. Thank you. Thank you to your listeners and keep up the good work. Peace. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So today, you know, at the beginning of the show, I talked about how uh, following Trump corruption news is like drinking from a fire hose. So naturally, as I was making today's show... Some of that fire hose blast uh, hit me in the form of an email from Mayday Pack. I haven't talked about them for a while, so refresher. They're an organization that is laser focused on corruption politics, specifically from dark money and all that. So right now they're focused on getting candidates elected who are dedicated to fighting that corruption from within the political system. So they sent out an email to highlight a couple of headlines that I think fit really well with today's theme, you know, to, to the show focused on Trump's history of corruption and where his attitudes about all this stuff comes from. And then today, the brand new news is uh, two things. First, Trump 
pardoned Dinesh D'Souza, who pleaded guilty to campaign finance fraud. And then secondly, Trump said he might free a convicted uh, corrupt politician, a, a story I had forgotten about, but definitely knew about when it happened. The former Illinois governor, Rod Blagojevich, who is currently in prison for trying to literally sell Barack Obama's U.S. Senate seat to big donors like he he was the governor of Illinois when Obama won the presidency that left an open seat. Rod Blagojevich had the opportunity to appoint someone to be that senator, and he was trying to sell that appointment to a big donor who would donate to his campaigns or maybe personally, but probably to his campaigns. So he's uh, he's been sentenced to 14 years in prison. And Trump is saying he never should have been put in jail. He's thinking about letting him out. What's and you know, and then the the first big uh, pardon that Trump did was of uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And so the the through line between all of those things is that Trump is just pardoning people who have definitely one hundred percent done illegal things. But they're just things he doesn't think should be illegal. He doesn't think that harassing immigrants in Arizona should be illegal. He doesn't think that campaign finance fraud should be a thing. He doesn't think that, I mean, selling the Senate seat is like, (laughs) I don't even, that is like so far beyond campaign finance fraud. But the through line is that he just doesn't think there should be limits on people in power. Now, you think about what a really radical progressive would do with their pardon power if they became president. Like, you could imagine them uh, staying every execution in the country. You could see them releasing all of the people who've been convicted just on marijuana charges. Like, you could imagine that happening, but all of that would be focused on powerless people who are being overly punished for things that don't deserve as much punishment as they're getting. Or in the, in the case of the death penalty, maybe they've done terrible, terrible things and need to be in prison forever, but just recognizing the death penalty is immoral and backward. But Trump takes it the other way and only focuses on powerful people who have stepped outside the bounds of the law. And he wants to reinforce their power and say, no, 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 no. you're rich and powerful and you tried to abuse that power and that's how it should be. So, you know, we look at today's show and, and, you know, the history of my favorite term is his oligarch envy, his desire to use money as power interchangeably and have no restrictions of any kind. And, and so, like, a really cynical person could look at his pardons and say, like, he's trying to send a message and he's trying to pardon the people who have done the same thing that he's done. So he's trying to protect himself. And like, sure, that might be true. But the through line is he thinks powerful people should never be held to account for basically anything. So I just wanted to share those couple of headlines with you. The timing of them was perfect as I was making today's show, looking at history and context to, to see where that has led right up to this day. That, oh, yeah, he has oligarch envy. He doesn't think rich and powerful people should ever be held to account. He's going to make a point of pardoning people who have 
definitely broken laws that frankly should be more strict than they are like the problem america has right now is not that our campaign finance laws are too strict so for dinesh d'souza to eventually plead guilty he admitted to it he pleaded guilty to campaign finance fraud in this day and age is amazing like you have to try so hard to break campaign finance laws in this country that it's ridiculous so just to uh, to see the through line from his history to today and how he is always on the side of the oligarchs, always on the side of the rich and the powerful, and always trying to create a world in which the rich and powerful never have any consequences for their actions. As always, I'd love to hear from you on this or any other topic. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of the left. That is absolutely how the program survives. It's very important. If you get value out of this show and you think it's worth a buck or two or five or whatever, Patreon is the way to do it. So I really appreciate you signing up. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, spreading the word, and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. 